following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. To Ephesians chapter 1. And last week we looked at the beginning of Paul's prayer there for the Ephesians. And let's begin this morning by reading that prayer again. Starting, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are rich, his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Let's begin this morning by praying and asking God to give us Wow, is that me? Cult of knowing God. And those three things are simply that we would have a greater understanding of our hope, our worth, and the power that's available to us. And so this morning, we looked last week at the first part of the prayer. I want to focus on the second part, these three benefits or blessings or things that come as a result of knowing God. Now, you know, when we look at face value at these words, hope, worth, and power, they oftentimes can kind of wash by us as really cool kind of religious sounding terms that don't really have impact in life. That, I assure you, wasn't Paul's intention or God's. These are concepts that Paul intended would radically impact their life. So I want to look at the, the concepts, and I also want to look at really how these things should be affecting great change and impact in our life. In fact, when Paul prays, he prays that they would be illuminated, that their, the lights would come on in their, in their heart. The Greek word that's used there is a word for understanding or thought. But Paul probably has in mind more the Old Testament concept of our heart. And the idea wasn't just that these would be intellectual concepts that we would think about, but that they would sink into the deepest parts of our being in the areas that had to do with our soul, our, our, our understanding, our will, kind of the center, what they viewed as the center of our being. And the idea is that as these things become realities in our heart, it impacts our choices and our will and our life and our behavior. So let's look at these three, these three great benefits of knowing God. First of all, he says, I pray that you would know um, what is the hope to which you are called. The hope to which you are called. Um, the word hope, 
literally really is the idea of something expected. Okay, it is our great expectation, I call it. Uh, our hope is not something we wish for. And there's, you know, we use the word hope in the English language like this. I hope the electricity stays on. Okay, now there's a degree of certainty or uncertainty in that statement depending where I say that. If I'm in India, there's no certainty. Here, you know, this morning, not much certainty either, right? Uh, but that's not how Paul uses the word here. The word hope really has the idea of a confident expectation of things that will come about. And the reason there's confidence, the reason it's a certain expectation, is because it's not our hope, it's God's hope. When God hopes for something, it's guaranteed. God doesn't hope that it'll rain tomorrow, uh, and it may or may not. If God hopes it's going to rain tomorrow, you better take your umbrella, right? Because when God hopes something, it is his purpose and will he, he will do it. And there is nothing that can prevent him from seeing his hopes fulfilled. And so Paul says that we need to understand the hope to which we have been called. God has called us, chosen us, saved us to, to, to God's hope. Uh, God will accomplish his purposes. And therefore, we have a great expectation about the future. And that expectation isn't just about the far distant future when we someday die and go to heaven, but it really is all of our future. As a believer, all of our future from tomorrow, from this afternoon onward, is covered with a sense of God's hope and purpose, that God will carry out all of his plans and goals in our life. Uh, The focus of God's hope, well, let's, let's back up. The means of God's hope or the basis of God's hope is always his own work, especially focused on Christ and the cross. So the hope of the gospel is the hope that Jesus has done this work uh, guaranteeing our salvation and conquering sin, evil, and death for us. So that's the basis of our hope. The focus of our hope is really the outworking of God's saving plan in our life. All right. So the focus of, of this hope is it's much more inward than outward, although it does have to do with outward things as well. But it really has to do with things like our salvation, our righteousness, eternal life, coming to share in God's glory and purpose in our life, and knowing Him. Uh, so, uh, you know, we want we want hope to be God solving all my problems. All right, and uh, I'm sure none of you have problems, but if you ever do, you know, we want God to solve those. Right, and there's some hope for that. Uh, that's not necessarily going to be true. But what is true, absolutely, what we can have absolute certainty about is that God will accomplish all his work in us. Maybe not in our circumstances the way we want, but certainly in us. He will mold and shape and build us into the image and likeness of Christ. We will one day share together in his glory. We will possess all of God's great riches and treasures one day in eternity. And we really actually are possessors of those things now. They're just stored away in a safe deposit box for future you know, access. Um, so that's the hope we're called to. Um, well, how, how does knowing this change our life? Uh, that's all great and wonderful, but um, what does that do for you today? Well, this is what I think it should do, or one of the things it should do. The reality is that today's world does not have hope. 
the, the tone and atmosphere of the nature of the world today is that the world is really quite hopeless. And you, you look all around and there is this great spirit of despair about the future. There's uncertainty about wars, about the economic future of things, about um, uh, global warming, about uh, where society is going, increased crime rates, increased uh, struggles and pain. The prisons are becoming more full. Any country you go around the world, nobody is saying, hey, we think we're on the verge of, uh, you know, of a new age when everything is perfect and good. Right? The utopian society has arrived at last. Now, 100 years ago, people were saying that. 100 years ago, there was this great expectation that we were on the verge of introducing a utopian society into the world. Well, after 100 years of miserable failure on every front, we're at a place now where people's going, okay, there is no utopia. It was a lie. It's bogus. And the future doesn't look that great. Right? Well, for us, well, for the world, how does the world deal with that? Okay, if you're in the world, you don't have the hope of Christ, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, one thing you do is you, um, you distract yourself uh, and pretend that things are okay. You know, you watch lots of TV, you bury yourself in books, you do drugs, you drink. You, 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 you live as though today is all there is. Isn't that where the world is? Is that pretty much what the world does? Uh, people aren't saving for the future. They're living for now because they are convinced that's what there is. So you, you, you numb yourself, you distract yourself, you delude yourself with, with whatever you can get out of life. Or you just pretend and live in denial that it's all really as bad as it is. You become an optimist. You practice the power of positive thinking. Which, you know, I, I've never been accused of being an optimist. Um, so I'm not, really, I'm not really big on optimism. And I, just think, I think optimists are just people living in denial. Okay? Look around. There's nothing to be optimistic about. Okay? Okay? That's where the world lives. Okay? That's where the world's at. Um, for us, obviously, things are much different. For us, there is a confident certainty about the good prospects for our future. No matter what kind of situations or circumstances you're in today, the good news is tomorrow it's going to be better. Uh, no matter what struggles or difficulties or trials you have to go through, our hope tells us that in the end, good things will come to us. Things will work out. And that's true in the short term as well as the long, ter long term. Uh, tomorrow, God is going to keep working in our life. The next day, God is going to be working out His plan. The day after that, God is still going to be working out His plan in our life until He completes and finishes that plan one day in eternity when we will become fully and completely His righteous, good children who share completely in His power and glory and rule and reign with Him forever. And that's a process that He's begun already working out in our lives today. So, the, the, it's kind of like this. When I used to run a lot and run, and run marathons, there always comes a point in a long training run or a long race when it just hurts a lot. And you start telling, asking yourself really kind of obvious questions like, what are you doing, you idiot? Out here just torturing yourself. Why are you doing this? Right? Just quit. Just quit. 
And uh, you start contemplating that and you think, you know, quitting sounds pretty good. Quitting sounds like the thing I should do. But then you start thinking and you start coming to grips with this truth that the pain will end. There will come the finish line and the pain will end. And my, my motivation was always, the sooner I get to the finish line, the sooner the pain is over, right? If I quit now, it's going to take me forever to get to the finish line. So I'd keep running and it would be over. Well, the, the, the thing that hope should do for us is it should give us a calm confidence to wait on God in the midst of the worst situations in life. Okay? No matter how painful things are, no matter how difficult our circumstances, if we have hope, what it does for us is it enables us to wait patiently on God, knowing He is going to work out His plan. It's all in His power and control, and where I am is where I'm supposed to be. And even though it may hurt a lot today, soon the pain will be over. And God will bring that thing to an end and He will resolve it. He will work His good work out of it. And you will enjoy the triumph of having finished the race. Right? That's, that's hope. That's our hope. So people who have hope are people who can endure and wait patiently for God to carry out His plan. I don't have to panic. Okay, if you're panicked, you're not, you're not living in hope, right? Because hope is a great confidence or expectation that God will complete his work in us and through us. That everything in the end, if we walk by faith and keep our eyes on him, everything's going to turn out exactly the way God wants it to, to accomplish his purpose in our life. Okay, that's hope. second thing he talks about is our, our great worth. And sadly, some translations, and it's, 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 a, it's a translation difficulty, actually. Um, it says, uh, I pray that you would understand uh, literally the, the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints. So what does that mean? God's glorious inheritance, his rich inheritance in the saints. Well, first of all, it says it's God's inheritance, not ours. And it says the inheritance is in the church, in the believers, in the body of Christ. And I really think what, what Paul is describing, what he's praying, is that we would understand as God's church, as God's people, that we are God's treasure. Now, there's a part of us that wants to know what our inheritance is, and, and that's the hope, okay? And that's not all bad. There is a hope that we will get an inheritance. And I trust you, when you get to heaven... None of you are going to be like homeless on the streets begging, okay? No matter how bad you mess it up here, you know, you're going to do okay in heaven. You're going to get a pretty decent inheritance there, all right? All the wealth and glory of heaven will be yours. So, you know, if you're worried about being able to buy clothes there, don't worry. You're going to, you're going to be able to dress well. The food will be good. It's all free. So we're going to be okay. But there's something more significant about being treasured by God being a priceless possession to him. And uh, the words that Paul uses here, it's not just that we're an inheritance, but he, he, he likes to pile up these adjectives. And here he piles up the adjectives, a gloriously, abundantly rich and wealthy inheritance. Okay, we're not just your kind of average run-of-the-mill inheritance, you know, like you get grandma's leftover dusty, you know, 100-year-old chair, Right? This, this is a gloriously wealthy, abundantly rich treasure. 
Now, I don't know really what that is. I've never possessed one of those things. I have no prospects of any in the future either, by the way. Um, I, I don't come from that kind of blood where there's great wealth in store for me on this earth. So I thought, well, what would, what would, what would a gloriously rich treasure look like to me? And the, and the thing that came to my mind was the Hope Diamond. It's not the greatest picture of it here, but uh, I actually got to see it. It's on display at the Smithsonian in- Institute in Washington, D.C., and I've got to see it. And it is an a impressive and spectacular diamond set in this setting of a whole ring of other very large diamonds. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool treasure. So I started doing some research on the, you know, what is the Hope Diamond. What I really wanted to know was how much it was worth. Well, four hours later, well, almost, after doing all this research, I found out this incredible story. And I want to share with you this story uh, because it really, it really is a good picture illustration of what a gloriously rich treasure is. Uh, the, the diamond was first bought in 1642 by the French merchant Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. Uh, and at that time, the diamond was 112 carats. Okay, now I don't know much about diamonds, but I'm knowing, I'm knowing 112 is, is large. Okay, the one I saw, it was, by this point, it was cut down some, but it's a big, it's a big rock, okay? Um, he, he actually bought it in, uh, in Golconda, India, carried it around with him for 26 years before he made it back to France, stood before King Louis XIV in France, who was very impressed with it, and bought it along with several other diamonds that Tournier had collected. Uh, it belonged to him, to King Louis XIV of France in 1668, and it stayed in his family for over 100 years until 1792 when one of his descendants, Louis XVI, and his family ended up confined or imprisoned during the French Revolution. And during that time, some thieves broke into the, uh, you know, the royal treasure house and stole all their, their jewels. Many of the jewels were recovered, but the, the Hope Diamond was not recovered. And it basically dis- disappeared from history until about 1839. And there's a lot of legends about where it was, but nobody knows for certain. But in 1839, it was published in a a published collection of jewels that belonged to a guy named, um, hmm, what was his name? Henry Philip Hope. Henry Philip Hope. And that's where he gets his name from, was from this guy. Uh, Somehow he had come to to, uh, get the diamond. And it stayed in the Hope family until uh, 1901, so about another 80 years, until um, one of his great-grandkids, here's great-grandkids for you, you know, was was in bankruptcy and had to sell the diamond to get out of bankruptcy. From 1901 to 1910, it was kind of made the circuits between jewelry collectors. Uh, at one point in 1909, it was sold for 400,000 U.S. dollars. Okay, so not not bad, right? Not bad. Um, not in the present setting, by the way. Uh, it finally ended up in the hands of Pierre Cartier in 1910. All right, remember that, 1910, okay? Now, while the Hope family was fighting over this diamond, there's a lot of great stories about this family and all the intrigue and murder and cheating on your wife and all that kind of good stuff and stealing. Uh, while that's going on, another story intersects. And in, in 1869, a guy named Thomas Walsh immigrated from Ireland to the United States. 
a 19-year-old kid. He had been trained as a carpenter and a millwright. Went to the Americas to, you know, find a better life. Ended up in Massachusetts about that time in the late uh, 1860s, 1870s. Uh, there was a gold rush going on in Colorado, my home state. And uh, he heard about this, and he headed to Colorado, not for the gold, but because he saw it as a great opportunity to use his trade and make money doing carpentry and millwriting. Um, ended up in Leadville, Colorado. Uh, got plugged in, you know, as a carpenter, and soon started wheeling and dealing in mining equipment. Within a few years, he had... Uh, assembled about $75,000. Okay, not bad work for an Irish carpenter uh, in those days. Fell in love with a beautiful school teacher, got married, had two kids. One of his daughters' name is Evelyn Walsh. Remember Evelyn. She's a key person in our story. Uh, he was never very interested in gold mining itself. He was making too much money off people gold mining. But eventually the bug kind of hit him. In, in the 1890s, he decided to, to actually try his hand at gold mining. But he had spent many years actually studying and researching and uh, applied great knowledge and skill to his, his searching for gold. And in uh, 1896, he went to Uray, Colorado, which is very close to where I used to live, uh, just a short drive away. Uh, bought a mine, and if you could go to the next slide, set up the Camberg Gold Mine. Well, there he struck it rich. The Camberg gold mine became the second most productive gold mine in the state of Colorado. Within a very short time, it was producing $5,000 a day in gold. Now, how many of you would take a $5,000 a day paycheck? Not bad. Uh, the, the gold mine actually operated for 100 years, closed in, in 1990. In its career, uh, by 2009 gold prices, it produced $1.5 billion worth of gold. Okay, not bad. Well, uh, Walsh uh, made his money, uh, moved to Washington, D.C. with his family, started living the upscale life of the rich and famous. In 1901, he sold the gold mine for $5.2 million, which in those days was a lot of money, and uh, was set for life. Um, he uh, died, interestingly, in 1910, leaving his estate to his daughter and his son. In 1910, Evelyn gets married, and her father's just passed away. She's just inherited her this enormous inheritance, and she wants to go shopping, right? That's what every good person does when you inherit unlimited wealth. You go shopping. And for whatever reason, she was in the shopping mood for diamonds. She traveled to Paris. She met Cartier, and she actually saw the Hope Diamond, but originally was not at all interested in it because she didn't like the setting. Went back to the States. Cartier, being no fool himself, reset the diamond in, in the setting that you saw, uh, sent it to the United States and says, here, Evelyn, we want, I want you to just hang on to this for the weekend. Just wear it around the house for a few days. See what you think. Uh, well, it worked. She never took it off. And she bought the, the diamond, the Hope Diamond. And she loved this diamond. Uh, she wore it virtually every day of her life. And it became one of her great treasures. There's a, a picture of her wearing it. Every picture you see of her, she's wearing that diamond. And in fact, in one of the pictures, uh, she actually put a loop on the bottom of it so she could hook two other diamonds. She was also in the possession of uh, the star of the East Diamond, 92 carats. 
92 carats. And another small little 32 carat stone. And she would wear all three of them around her neck, right? She cherished this diamond. She loved it. And I don't know, and I wasn't able to find this out, but I kind of wonder if there wasn't some link with her dad being a miner. And I've seen some of the rocks and stones that came out of that mine. They're beautiful. Beautiful crystals, beautiful gold and quartz formations. If she just had a great appreciation for these precious rocks. And uh, if it was somehow a connection to a reminder of her father, I don't know. But not bad, right? Um, they, there's, there's rumors that she would actually strap the diamond to her dog's collar. And her dog would wear it around sometimes. There's just something wrong about that, okay? Something wrong. Uh, eventually, she died, and like all wealthy people, pass off this huge debt to their children who had to sell the diamond to get out of debt. Uh, it was eventually bought by um, a guy, a jeweler in New York, who uh, who gave it to the Smithsonian. And he really also cherished the value of it, but really felt it was something that should be enjoyed by everybody and donated it to the Smithsonian uh, in, the, in the early late 50s uh, for everybody to enjoy. So you can go there and you can see it, and it is an impressive stone. Um, interestingly, when he sent the 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 diamond from New York to Washington, D.C., he sent it in a plain brown box by registered mail. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Million dollar plus, I mean, millions of dollars stone sends it through the mail. There's, there, there's hope. There's hope. Misplaced, but there's hope. So the real question is, I'm in my whole, I went through this whole journey studying all this to find out how much it's worth. How much is it worth? How much do you think? What do you think? Um... Well, the estimates say that the stone, if it were any other stone of that size and quality, would be worth about $50 million U.S., $50 million U.S. However, because of its story, they say it's worth about 250 to $300 million because it's got this history, this, this incredible story, right? Well, here's the point. The worth of a treasure demonstrates the wealth of the owner. Okay, the worth of the treasure demonstrates the wealth of the owner. Uh, if you can click and show the picture, there's a picture of her. This is Evelyn, my hero, Evelyn. Okay, she was, she was you know, what did it mean for her to wear this diamond? Well, it, it was quite a statement. You know, you wear this rock around that's worth millions of dollars. Pretty much you're saying, you know, don't mess with me. I've got lots of money, right? And she kind of has got that attitude, right? Uh, what does it mean for God to possess us as his treasure? Well, first of all, it says an incredible amount about the worth of the treasure. Uh, secondly, the worth of the treasure says a great deal about the wealth of its owner. Uh, you know, do we have any sense of how precious we are to God? You know, I, I like Evelyn that she just loved this diamond. A lot of people own expensive stones and they stay locked in a safety deposit box. Uh, she, she, she didn't care so much about the value of it. She strapped it to her dog. It was rumored that several times she lost it at parties. It would send the kids out looking for it. It was a child's game. Okay? She just liked it. Okay? She just enjoyed it. She cherished it. It was a treasure she enjoyed every single day. I see that's how God treasures us. He enjoys us. He delights in us. He, he, 
gazes upon us every single day. He, he looks at us with great wonder and delight. Uh, we are to him an expression of his own grace and glory at work in sinful creatures, making us into the image and likeness of himself, created in his image, reflecting his glory. We are beautiful to him. Uh, he loves us and cherishes us as a gloriously rich treasure. Another thing that uh, I think this, this story kind of reminds us of is that the greater the story, the greater the value. Part of what gives us our value is our story. Uh, when we stand in all eternity, our story with all its ups and downs and struggles and, and difficulties are what give us uh, worth in God's eyes. And ultimately, the story of how God has worked out his grace in us. That gives us our worth. Just as this diamond has so much more worth because of the story. Uh, how does that change your life? Well, I hope that changes your life. I mean, I hope we come to know that deep in our heart in a way that changes our life. Uh, when I was working as a counselor in private practice, people paid me a lot of money. Well, actually, they didn't pay me that much money. I could have charged a lot more. But uh, people paid money for one thing because they felt that the significant, important people in their life did not treasure them. Almost always, that's what it came down to. Their parents, significant people, their spouse, their husband, people who should have treasured and valued them deeply and greatly, did not, they felt did not value them, did not really treasure them. And they spent the rest of their life trying to find worth and value. Uh, the reality is the most significant being in the universe treasures you more than you can imagine. Okay, you don't have to find worth anywhere else. God loves you. He treasures you. Uh, that should change your life. The third, the third thing that Paul talks about is power. He says, I also uh, pray that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for, for us who believe. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Um, he says that the third thing we need to understand is that God has made available to us incredible power. Incredible power. What is power? Well, Paul uses uh, at least six different terms in these verses to describe power. He just piles them on top of each other. Uh, and then he adds all these act adjectives like super incredibly big, awesome dude power. That's kind of my own translation of the Greek. Um, he, he wants us to know that it is Absolute power. What is power? Well, in its simplest form, power is simply the ability to do what we will without being lim limited, hindered, deterred, that there would be no obstacles or obstructions in doing what we want to do. God has that kind of power. Okay, there's nothing that gets in God's way of doing what he wants to do. That's the kind of power Paul's describing here. God has this super abundantly great, mighty power. It's kind of like last night I saw the storm moving across the valley, and I, I thought, you know, that's, that's a great picture of power. A hurricane moving across the ocean, a great storm moving in its path, going where it will go. Nothing can get in its way and stop it, right? 
Uh, democracy can't stop a hurricane. Now, you can't get together and vote. How many vote that the hurricane not hit our country? I'll say aye. Okay, we decided it can't come here. Right? Does that work? No. Uh, dictators. Dictators have no power over this. Fidel Castro, he tried. Don't come to Cuba. The hurricanes come. <laughs> Bold right through Cuba. Being a dictator doesn't stop any, uh, in a hurricane. Okay, that's power. Nothing can stop it and get in its way. Biggest fan in the world, blowing at the hurricane, no, no impact, no effect. Okay, that's power in God's hands. There's nothing that can challenge, nothing that can oppose or limit or obstruct what God wills to do. All right? And he says that he has made his power available to you and I. And he goes on just to make sure we're clear about what this power is. He says this is the same power that he exerted or that he put to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in, in, at his right hand in power and authority. In other words, God himself who has unlimited power put that power to work in the, in the person of Christ. Now, and I think here it's important that it's the, the man Jesus, not the God Jesus, but the man Jesus who died on the cross. The Jesus who was God incarnate who died. God animated him with new life, brought him back to life, and set Jesus in power and authority over everything. And he goes on and he describes that now Jesus sits in, in authority over all these other forces. Okay? Um, and those forces are all enemies of God. Okay, God's not worried about the forces that are on his side, the authorities, rulers, powers, things that are already subjected to him. He's talking here about those spiritual forces that are at war against God, that are his enemy. He said, just so you know, this is, the, this is my power. I put Jesus as commander over all these forces. A sovereign might. All, all these forces have been suggest, subjected under his feet. Quoting from Psalms 8 and Psalms 110. Uh, by the way, the most quoted scripture in the New Testament are those two verses that talk about God putting all things under Jesus' feet. Uh, because that's why Jesus came, to subject evil and death and sin and all these dark powers that come against us, that came against God. And God says, just so you know, Jesus right now rules and is supreme authority over all these forces. There is, no, there is nothing that will stand in God's way. All the forces of evil cannot get in God's way of Him accomplishing His purpose. Okay, they thought, and here's what God did. He, he took His Son, He sent Him to earth as a human being who was subject to the forces of nature in the world. He handed Jesus over to His enemies. And they did with him as they would. And they killed him. And they thought by killing him, they could stop him. But God had, a, had, had more to the story. He said, my power is greater than that. And by the way, death isn't really an obstacle for me. Watch this. <laughs> Jesus comes back to life. And not only that, but he comes back bigger than life. He says, isn't it enough that I'm just going to raise him from the dead? I'm going to put him on the throne of the power of the universe so that everything will be subject to him. Nobody messes with Jesus. Right? And, and Paul says, that's the power that God has made available to you. In fact, he goes on and he says that, that he did all this, subject, putting Christ on, on the throne, subjecting everything under his feet, 
making everything bow before Him uh, for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of, of His chosen people, this jewel, this treasure of His called the church. All right? God has power available for us. What that means is, for us, for you and I, there's absolutely nothing that can get in the way of God fulfilling and accomplishing His purpose in our life. Nothing. If we are people of faith, and He says He's given this to those who are believers. If we are people who are believing in God's promises, are believing in His salvation, uh, God has made available to us all of His power to complete and accomplish all of His purpose and work in our life. All right? Now, part of me wants to... I, part of me likes this because what I want to do is I want to wield this power to like smash people, right? Because that would be fun, <laughs> all right? And uh, in fact, one of the questions I have when I think about this is, well, you know, it says that Jesus is subjecting these powers to his authorities, putting them under his feet. I don't want him just under his feet. I want him squishing the daylights out of him, right? Why isn't Jesus doing that? The reality is that these powers are still exercising great authority and dominion on this earth. I don't know if you've noticed this, but evil didn't go away. Not in my life. Not in the world I live in. It's everywhere. So if it's under Jesus' control and power and authority, what's the deal here, right? Well, the deal is this, that God uh, has a reason and a purpose for evil still operating in the world. It is still in his hands to use to accomplish his good purpose in our life. All right? Now, I don't always understand that, and I really don't like it. Okay? I don't like it. Uh, but the reality is that God has a reason for evil still being here. But know this, that all the evil forces in the world operate under God's authority, control, and power. So what that means in our life is, yeah, every day we have to battle evil in ourselves, evil in the world. We have to battle against sin and darkness. We have to battle against spiritual forces that come against us. We have to battle against the world that's under the control and authority of these evil forces. You know that crazy lady down in immigration, you know? Uh, she's, she's working for the devil, along with a lot of other people, right? Uh, they don't know that, but that's what Scripture says. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Okay, they're just victims like us. They're just people under the, the squeeze of evil. Right? But, but know this, that even though we have to battle with these things every day, that God has assured us that His dominion over these things, His power and authority over these things, is in operation in our life and fully available to us. So that, his plan in our life will be accomplished. Nothing can stand in the way of God completing and accomplishing every purpose He has in your life and mine. Nothing can stand in the way. Not even us. We can't. This is good news. Is you and I can't even mess it up, right? Uh, even though sometimes we come pretty close. God's power is bigger than us. It's bigger than sin in our life. It's bigger than our failures. It's bigger than our circumstances. And the reality is that God may not always dominate and do, uh, you know, do in our circumstances the things we wish He would, right? Because the point is not the outward me. The point is not, the, the work is not 
the circumstances. The work is me. And the work that God wants to do, He wants to do in us to shape and form us and mold us into the likeness of Christ. He says here that we are the body of Christ. In other words, we as the, as the church, as, as His representatives on earth, are Jesus here. And the work that He's doing is producing us a life that reflects Christ to the world around us. Why isn't Jesus on earth doing this stuff? Well, because He's reigning in heaven, squashing demons, right? And He has put us here and empowered us that we would be Christ in the world. That you and I would be shaped and molded so that our character, our life, our righteousness, our conduct, our attitude would reflect and be Jesus to the world. So that we would be his hands and feet. So that we would be active agents doing his work of bringing the world to himself. Okay? And the point is that nothing can get in the way of that. All right? Nothing can stop God's purpose in our life. And see, that's the hope, right? That is the hope, that you can't mess it up. And God will accomplish every purpose so that one day you'll get to the end of your life and you may have regrets, God will have none. You may be disappointed about some things, God will not be disappointed about you. And you will step into eternity and uh, you'll see God's perspective on things and you'll see the work and you won't be disappointed anymore either. You will see that it's all been carefully under God's hand and work, that he has been slowly working in you, uh, making you his treasure. It's interesting, the the Hope Hope Diamond started out at 112 carats. It was actually recut twice, once by Louis XIV, and later when it was stolen, they think it was recut to to just kind of hide it. (laughs) Like, yeah, you hide a 50-carat diamond that's blue, right? Uh, But that was the goal. Uh, the good news is that every time it got cut, it actually made it more beautiful. God is doing that work in your life. He is cutting, shaping, faceting uh, to bring out His glory and beauty in us. Nothing can stop that work if we are people of faith, if we are people who trust in Him. Well, what difference can that make in your life? Well, I hope that makes a difference. I mean, I hope, I hope somehow that makes a difference. But I've asked Rick to come share a testimony of kind of some things that God's been doing in his life and how he's seen, um, well, I'll let him share.